Hey, everybody. Those watching online, streaming, everybody here, it's so good to see you, man. It's uh, so glad you're joining us. Um, sure enjoyed the music today. How about you, huh? I mean, I do every Sunday, but but I was thinking of the team, media team up there, the uh, volunteers all over the building. Uh, so grateful for people loving Jesus so much they want to serve, you know? That's awesome. So I just want to take a moment. Uh, I realized that Nick mentioned it that um, everybody is in a different place spiritually. Uh, some have connected with the Lord for years. Some have um, done it recently. And some are in the process of searching for truth, uh, searching really for God. And uh, not knowing your background, you know, I realize people come from different you know, churches growing up, etc. your experience with God. And during the, the music, the singing today, I wasn't looking behind me, but I had my hands raised, and, and maybe you come from a place where that never happened. Uh, and you might think it's a little weird, but I want to just encourage you that this is not a church thing, it's not a denominational thing, it's a Bible thing. It's in the Bible, it's loaded. In fact, when you read the book of Psalms, um, it's, it's a music book, really. And uh, it teaches us how to worship. And, and um, it's so important that God put it, put it in his word so that we could be taught and to learn how we should really worship. Uh, and it's not just an Old Testament thing, it's a New Testament thing as well. But I want to read out of Psalm 63. And uh, David, uh, the shepherd, the king, uh, the warrior on the battlefield, uh, he wrote this. And I, I, I just want to encourage the men. Uh, ladies tend to um, be more expressive in their worship. Guys are more reserved. I don't know why that is. Um, but anyway, just an, a, a word of encouragement here from, from a dude. Uh, Psalm 63, one, O God, you are my God. I earnestly search for you. My soul thirsts for you. My whole body longs for you in this parched and weary land where there is no water. I have seen you in your sanctuary and gazed upon your power and your glory. Your unfailing love is better than life itself. How I praise you. What's that look like? Well, he answers it in verse 4. I will praise you as long as I live, lifting up my hands to you in prayer. You satisfy me more than the richest feast. I will praise you with songs of joy. And so, um, again, just saying in, in a relationship uh, with your heavenly Father, uh, lifting up hands, I surrender to you, mighty God. I need you, mighty God. I worship you, mighty God. See? 
You could say, well, I worship from my heart. Well, you're really robbing yourself and God of what he rightly deserves. And that's, it's not that he's on an ego trip, you know, you got to build it, boost him up, you know, God, you're great. God already knows that. But there's something, humanly speaking, when a, a human being created by God Almighty, handmade by God, to recognize that he's God and I'm not. That's critical. And during your week, you know, you might have a successful week doing whatever. And our egos thrive on that kind of stuff. And you read Israel, um, their relationship with God in the Old Testament, they forgot God so quickly. They became critical of God so quickly. And cultivating a heart of worship and gratitude to the Lord uh, keeps life in balance, yeah. you know, for the long haul. And uh, I know for me, uh, it was it was a shift in my thinking because the church I grew up in, it was dead spiritually, to be quite honest. It was very religious, but it was dead. It wasn't life-giving. And when I realized um, as a young man how much God loved me, my natural response was to lift my hands in gratitude. Lord, I love you because I realize how much you love me. So just, uh, you know, we don't have uh, drones flying around here at your houses watching online to see if people are raising their hands. God doesn't love you more if you raise your hands. That's not it. It's simply a relationship, you know, and, and your heart responds um, to a loving God. You know, you can't hold it back. <laughs> you just can't hold it back. So uh, it's liberating. And so there you have it. We'll, we'll spend more time talking about this topic um, probably uh, as we go along. And, uh, you know, it is important. So... Uh, Jeremiah mentioned the uh, Connect cards. If you're here for the first time, thanks for coming. Uh, enjoy your time. Relax. We believe that the presence of God is here, and we acknowledge that, and we invite that. We want him to be here. Yeah. Uh, and believe me, if we said we don't want you here, he'd be here anyway. You know? That's just God, man. He, he is everywhere all the time, and, and we're just saying, Lord, thank you. And we're embracing that, and we need you um, just to roll through our lives, up and down the corridors of our every part of our life, and for God to have his way. So, um, You miss George, don't you? I can see it on your faces. Yeah, well, he's taking a break today. Uh, If you don't know who George is, you're going to have to go backstream uh, uh, this series in Philippians. So, so anyway, uh, hey Josh, uh, I have my shirt on too, man. <laughs> uh, we're all undercover, man. Woo! Uh, it's not that I'm. Hiding my light under a bushel. <laughs> uh, we'll talk more about that too. Uh, 
So you have to stick around. I mean, it may not get to it today, but, you know, probably in three years we'll meander our way through. So, yeah, yeah, yeah. So if you're watching online, if you're, uh, you're in the auditorium, pick up your uh, programs, pull up your outline for today. And uh, as you know, we're going through Philippians Unchained, the Joy Project. And how's that working out for you? You know, joy, joy, you know, uh, everything in this world is trying to destroy joy. You know, there's an assault on joy. And that's the cool thing, man. Uh, this planet is not my home. Heaven is my home. So what goes on here does not impact my joy. My joy is anchored in Jesus Christ. And the hope that I have that I'm going to see him face to face one day. That's my joy. And we can, we can measure our spiritual maturity as to what it takes to take our joy away from us. And we look at the life of Paul, there doesn't seem to be anything that he experienced. The pain, the suffering, the rejection, the hatred that cost him his joy. No, he, he was able to um, press through that, keeping his joy and telling others about it, modeling it for you and I over 2,000 years later. So here we are. Um, so today we're going to be looking at Philippians 1, um, 18 through... As far as we go. <laughs> Let's read that together. Starting at verse 18, Paul says it doesn't matter. What does it matter? Life doesn't matter? No. Um, he, he's dialing in on the personal rejection, um, the, the hatred, the assault on him personally, his character. Hey, we're living in a broken world. You've had that happen to you, haven't you? It might have been a dad. It might have been a mom. might have been a brother, sister. might have been a friend, a colleague, a neighbor, uh, where you were backstabbed, where you were supposed to get that promotion and somebody else lied about you and they got it instead. That's the way life is. And Paul's experienced that. And that's where he lands and says, it doesn't matter. That doesn't matter. Nothing will distract me from doing what God's called me to do, and that's to be a light in this world and tell others about Jesus. Yeah. And he is, he is tenacious about that. So that doesn't matter. Whether their motives are false or genuine, the message about Christ is being preached either way. So I rejoice, and I will continue to rejoice. So Paul is talking to himself. You know, he's made it through the past, but he's not coasting into the future. He is setting the course that I will continue to rejoice no matter what happens to me personally. And you and I need to do that very same thing. We need to be committed to pressing on and rejoicing in the process. 
For I know that as you pray for me and the spirit of Jesus Christ helps me, this will lead to my deliverance. For I fully expect and hope that I will never be ashamed, but that I will continue to be bold for Christ as I have been in the past. And I trust that my life will bring honor to Christ whether I live or die. For to me, living means living for Christ and dying is even better. But if I live, I can do more fruitful work for Christ, so I really don't know which is better. I'm torn. You you feel that emotion. Go into that, that room where Paul's chained to the guard, and he's he's really exposing his inner self here. I'm torn between two desires. I I'd long to go to be with Christ, which would be far better for me. But for your sakes, it's better that I continue to live. Father, thank you for your word today. It's good. Your word is so good. Uh, We're grateful that you don't complicate your word to us, Lord. You, You make it very simple. Even a child can understand it. Help us today to become fully engaged in what you want to tell us, Lord, and apply it to our lives. We don't want to put our minds in neutral and uh, plan our week as we sit in this place. But no, Lord, we want to listen to what the Spirit of God is saying and say yes to it. We thank you for that, Lord. The power, your word transforms lives. It's so cool. In Jesus' name, amen. In the mid-1970s, the high-tech workers in Los Angeles, California, began constructing a new generation of spaceships. The first to be launched was the space shuttle Columbia, the flagship of NASA's new fleet. Uh, Columbia blasted off April 12, 1981, and orbited the Earth 36 times. 27 missions followed with Columbia. But Columbia's final trip proved to be a flight that was tragic. While re-entering Earth's atmosphere, 8 o'clock in the morning central time on February 1st, 2003. Pause, by the way. Do you remember where you were on February 1st, 2003? Some of you guys should know because we were at No Regrets at Elmbrook Church. And I remember walking into the foyer And they were playing, rolling the film of this tragedy. Seven astronauts who lost their life. That shuttle broke apart. Why? Because a piece of insulating foam the size of a small briefcase had peeled off during the launch 16 days earlier punctured one of the vessel's wings, and the intense heat of reentry caused the gases to penetrate the wing, triggering the catastrophe that killed these seven astronauts. Debris from the wreckage landed in Texas and Louisiana. Thousands of people were outside watching for the reentry that never happened. Several years later, a report emerged from the accident. 
And while the mission was in progress, NASA specialist studying the punctured wing questioned whether the damage was fatal. In other words, would Columbia be okay re-entering the atmosphere? Would it, would it hold together? And um, the flight director for the mission, John Harpold, wrote this. You know, there's nothing we can do about the damage to the thermal protection system. If it has been damaged, it's probably better not to know. I think the crew would rather not know. Don't you think it would be better for them to have a happy, successful flight and die unexpectedly during entry than to stay on orbit knowing that there was nothing to be done until the air ran out? Harpold's question was a speculative one. Should the crew be told if it was determined that the damage meant doom to the crew? Further analysis led Mission Control to conclude that Columbia's re-entry would be safe. The crew was given a full report of NASA's conclusion. Nobody on the ship, nobody at Command Central thought that the damage would prove to be fatal. So neither NASA nor the Columbia crew ever knew the situation was hopeless. Before the spacecraft broke apart at 207,000 feet above Texas. Evidence shows that even in the final moments of the flight, the crew still was desperately trying to maintain, regain control of that ship but the hypothetical question raised by John Harpold remains a haunting one, doesn't it? What would you do if you knew the crew was doomed? What would you do? Would you tell them, which most likely would cause mental anguish, um, but giving them time to say their goodbyes to their family, giving them time to reflect on their life, even possibly make peace with God? Or would you remain silent, making their final hours of time exciting, knowing and feeling the anticipation of seeing their loved ones soon? Well, in a way, the plight of Columbia resembles our own. We're flying through space on a spinning planet. In fact, a thousand miles per hour. Do you feel it? I hope you have your seatbelts on. You might fall out of those seats, man. But every person is subject to really sudden death at any moment, aren't we? Yeah. None of us will escape. Uh, but the difference is we should know that we're all going to die one day. And this is not to be dark or pessimistic. No, that's a fact of life. But here's the thing, we all have the opportunity to prepare for death, don't we? We do. We do. But here's the thing, death, for many people, is the ultimate fear that brings confusion and anxiety to their lives. Woody Allen put it this way, it's not that I'm afraid of dying, I just don't want to be there when it happens. <laughs> That's the way a lot of people feel. In fact, there were death and internet page lists 200 ways of saying death without saying death. Have you noticed how our culture is moving away 
from acknowledging death and the desire to live as long, longevity, defying death. In his book, The Hour of Our Death, historian Philippe Arias notes that death used to be taken as a part of life. Young people weren't shielded from it. Folks died at home. And the body was put on display there. People came by to weep and mourn their loss, but no one pretended a death had not incurred, as we often do today, when we gather in little groups in the parking lot after funerals and nervously tell jokes. I see that all the time. But here's the cool thing. The Bible's not afraid to talk about death. It's not. Uh, It calls it what it is. Words die, death, occur almost 900 times in the Bible. That's quite a few times, by the way. A great one that I like, Psalm 116, 15, the Lord cares deeply when his loved ones die. Uh, The NIV puts it, precious in the sight of the Lord is the death of his faithful servants. The message, when they arrive at the gates of death, God welcomes those who love him. I like that. Yeah, God welcomes them. So as a follower of Jesus Christ, who Paul was, and he's talking about death in this text. I don't know if you picked that up. We have a security about death. First Thessalonians 4.13, Paul writes, And now, dear brothers and sisters, we want you to know what will happen to the believers who have died so you will not grieve like people who have no hope. You see, as a follower of Christ, we have a radically different perspective about death. When my oldest sister died, when we were at the funeral home, my, my brother and my other sister and myself were to, gathered together. And my brother said, Diane gave us the greatest gift that she could give. What is that gift? That gift, he went on to say, was that she had her faith in Jesus Christ. She died, but we're going to see her again. You see? You see that hope right there? We have that hope. The promise. And Paul himself is under house arrest, chained to a praetorium guard, and he doesn't know. He doesn't know where his life is is going. He's under house arrest, but he doesn't know if it's going to end there. He doesn't know if he's going to live or he's going to die. But he's okay with not knowing because he knows where he's going if he does die. Uh, He's got that security. So once again, he's not feeling sorry for himself. He's writing this letter uh, to the church at Philippi and... Number one, it doesn't matter, so keep your joy. That's what Paul's telling us. Number two, embrace the confidence of joy. Verse 19, for I know that as you pray for me and the spirit of Jesus Christ helps me, this will lead to my deliverance. Uh, That word know is a very good word in the original, meaning absolute conviction based on experience or seeing something. I know, I know, I know. There's no doubt in my mind. I know. Paul's good with that. I know. I know that as you pray for me. 
Paul prays, but he recognizes the importance of other people praying for him. And what's interesting here is that Paul had been in Philippi 10 years earlier, and he's getting reports that that the church that was planted in Philippi 10 years earlier is still praying for him. There's something to that, friend. In other words, 10 years, time doesn't leave you absent-minded, you know. Well, I, that's, that was so long ago, I forget about that. No, the church in Philippi continued to pray for Paul. Isn't that good news? It's encouraging for each one of us as well that we need to continue to pray for those that we care for. And we see, Paul says, the spirit of Jesus Christ helps me. So people were praying and God's spirit was inside him, was empowering him to be able to keep his joy. Just a footnote, um, Job, Old Testament, 19, 25 through 27, this is what he has to say. But as for me, I know. (laughs) I know. But as for me, let's take it a step further. We could say, uh, uh, but as for me, I know that my Redeemer lives. I know that my Redeemer lives. And he will stand upon the earth at last. Really, Job is... Not only did Jesus walk the earth, but he's coming back. And, and you read Zechariah 14, when he comes back to earth, he's putting his feet down on the Mount of Olives, which is in Israel, just outside the old city. Friend, this is historical. This is prophetic. You could go to the Mount of Olives and Jesus puts his feet on the Mount of Olives. It will split the Mount in half opening the Mediterranean Sea's waters to flow to the Mount of Olives and down to the Dead Sea, bringing life with it. So Job is saying a lot here. I know. Do you know that your Redeemer lives? We sang about it today. We're going to be singing more about it as Easter approaches and comes. I know that my Redeemer lives. And he will stand upon the earth at last. And after my body has decayed, Job realized your body in the ground, it's going to decay. Yet in my body, I will see God. In other words, he realizes he's not going to die and it's all over. There's a soul that lives forever. That's what Job is saying. I will see God. I will see him for myself. Yes, I will see him with my own eyes. I am overwhelmed at the thought. Do you catch the emotion there? He's fired up. And when you read the context, man, the dude is suffering big time. And in the midst of suffering, he puts his eyes on God. And I know my Redeemer lives. And I will see him face to face. So what I'm going through right here, right now, it's temporary. But I will see my God for all of eternity. He's fired up about it. I I am overwhelmed at at that thought. Paul knows. Job knows. Do you know? Number three, joy no matter what, living or dying. Verse 20, for I fully expect and hope that I will never be ashamed, but that I will continue to be bold for Christ as I have been in the past, and I trust that my life will bring honor to Christ whether I live or die. Um, 
We, we touched on this last week. Uh, I fully expect and hope Paul is saying, I cannot wait to watch how God's going to answer uh, my situation. He says, for whether I live or die. You see? Do you see the confidence a follower of Christ has? When, you were, when your eternity is settled, when you know where you're going, after planet Earth, it gives you confidence to live life to the max. I live, whether I live or die, and I fully expect and hope. Um, that word hope, anticipating God's goodness in your life. Anticipating God's goodness in your life. Are you anticipating God's goodness in your life? Yeah. Paul is saying, as I look to the future, the great concern I hope for more than anything else is that I will be a faithful witness for Jesus. I don't want to be ashamed, he's saying. I want to be bold for him. And, uh, and that's what he says. And he doesn't say here, I have one great hope and that I get out of jail. <laughs> it's kind of like Monopoly, you know, the card. Boop, get out of jail, card. You know? Boom, get me out of here. Uh, no, Paul, Paul is at peace. Um, he's not saying, man, I wish I could, you know, do you realize how sore my, arm, my wrist is from that chain, you know? Do you, do you know how many scars I have? That, that bracelet's been on my wrist for 18 months so far? No, he doesn't go there. No, he says, whether I live or die, I want to be a witness for Jesus Christ. I'm looking for opportunities, even under house arrest, to represent Jesus well. <laughs> for I fully expect and hope that I will never be ashamed, but that I will continue to be bold for Christ. So last week we gave Daryl Strawberry's book away. Uh, um, some of you may have ordered it. Um, Greg Laurie. Uh, pastor out in California um, got to know Daryl, and he talks about his experience. Um, Daryl, I was immediately struck by his boldness. So we see Paul is bold. We're living in 2001. Does that mean we, we should not be bold? Can I tell you a little secret? Our culture is telling us as followers of Christ, don't be bold. Keep it in your house. Keep it to yourself, right? I was struck by his boldness, his love for Jesus. What makes you bold? Your love for Jesus. His down-to-earth humility. Again, I was impressed that no matter what question came at Daryl, he always brought the answer back to Scripture and used his life experience to point to God and give him glory. His love for Jesus is contagious, and his boldness is amazing. That's, that's happening right here, right now, on planet Earth, friend, which should encourage us to do likewise. Acts 4.29 says, And now, O Lord, the early church was praying, hear their threats, give us, your servants, great boldness in preaching your world. That's, that's a good prayer. You know, for all of us, Lord, give me boldness 
to let my light shine. Give me boldness in telling others about you. And I know that some of us go into panic mode when we think of being bold for Jesus, you know, because we think they're going to ram it down my throat. That's not what boldness is. Boldness is simply seeing the opportunities that God brings our way with people and we take advantage of it. Tell them our story. Tell them what Jesus has done in your life. Boldness can be intimidating, you know, because we've seen people that have, you know, they're, they're, (laughs) they're not very kind with their boldness and they run you over. No, that's not what Paul is writing about here. Paul is saying, be very practical with your faith. Just look for opportunities, open your mouth, and tell your story. So, Pastor Philip Brooks lived in the 1800s, put it this way, do not pray for easy lives. Oh boy, we tend to do that in America. Lord, make my life as easy as possible, right? Pray to be stronger men and women. Do not pray for tasks equal to your powers. Pray for powers equal to your tasks. Ephesians 6, 19, Paul writes, pray for me too. He's asking for prayer again. Ask God to give me the right words so I can boldly explain God's mysterious plan that the good news is for Jews and Gentiles alike. So... a good thing to pray for. A couple other verses, 2 Corinthians 3.12, since this new way gives us such confidence, what confidence? This good news, the gospel, we can be very bold because we're confident that the good news will change a person's life. Acts 28.30.31, this is where Paul, for the next two years, Paul, this is where we're at in in Philippians, Paul lived in Rome at his own expense. He welcomed all who visited him, boldly proclaiming the kingdom of God, teaching about the Lord Jesus Christ, and no one tried to stop him. So, So the curtain of this house arrest is pulled back long enough to say that Paul, even under house arrest, was boldly proclaiming the gospel, teaching about Jesus. So we should never lose the opportunity of doing that ourselves. So often we think about the Great Commission, go into all the world. We think I have to be a missionary, get on a boat or a plane and go somewhere else. And Jesus is simply saying, go across the street to your neighbor. (laughs) You see how easy that is? (laughs) You don't? Oh, you do? Okay, good, good, good. Verse 20b, um, and I trust that my life will bring honor to Christ whether I live or die. Isn't that good? Isn't that a, at the end of the day, when it's all said and done, I, I want my life to be known that it brought honor to Jesus. How do, how do you do that? Well, honor means to make Christ's fame spread more. That's what you want. It's not about you. It's about Christ's fame spreading, reaching out farther and farther. How do you do that? Well, look at the stars in the sky. Have you done that lately? 
Do you realize some of those stars are 12,000 times larger than the sun? Think about that. 12,000 times larger than the sun that we see every day in Wisconsin. Almost every day. (laughs) But when you look at those stars that are bigger than the sun, all we see is a little flicker or sparkle in the sky. Why is that? It's because they're so far away. So if you want to see them better, what do you do? You... You get a telescope, right? And when you get a telescope, those stars get magnified. You're enlarging them. And when you magnify something, it seems to get closer. That's what a believer's life is, friend. We are telescopes in our world. Because in our culture today, we think, oh, yeah, Jesus 2,000 years ago. That was so long ago. You know, it's, you know, who's Jesus? He's, he doesn't care about us. He's, you know, he's so far and distant and apathetic. That's how it's easy for non-believers to think of, of Christ. He's so distant. But as a believer, we get to magnify him and show him off to the people all around us. Um, <clears throat> Daryl... Strawberry, I'm going to go back to him. Um, Because somebody showed Christ off. Somebody magnified Christ to Daryl. It changed his life, friend. He talks about his dad hurting people hurt people. My dad was hurting and he hurt his family. The beatings, critical words, emotional abuse broke me as a person. This hindered me from knowing how to become a true man of God. It stunted my emotional and spiritual growth. My father did not surrender to God and therefore never knew the love and healing power of his heavenly father until shortly before he died. God calls us to embrace his ways of living and to model them for our children. This is the answer to the drug epidemic, the divorce rate, and the growing incarcerated population in our world today. My father came from a serious abuse and neglect himself, and I swore I would never be like him. Then one day I looked at myself in the mirror, and I saw a vision of my father staring me right in the face. That's what happens, guys. The same pattern of abuse and neglect was continuing in me. I finally realized I had to make a choice. I said to myself, Daryl, are you going to choose to surrender to God and fight to get well? Are you going to get help you need and break the cycle of dysfunction in your family once and for all? My answer was a profound yes. Life change begins inside the person who chooses to surrender to God and participate in his transforming process. I couldn't change my past, but God could change how I allowed my past to shape the present and influence my future. Some of you need to make this same choice. Will you choose God and his ways or continue on the same dead-end road? See, Somebody became a telescope for Daryl, and his life was broken big time. You see? Do you see how important it is to be a telescope? (laughs) Should we start a telescope club? That's another one we can start here. A telescope club. (laughs) How cool is that? 
So as non-believers watch followers of Christ through a crisis, guess what? They see Jesus magnified, don't they? And brought so much closer to where they're living. Paul says, I want greatness of Christ become even greater through my body. Let him use it for his honor. So, over a hundred years ago, there were missionaries that um, they viewed life and death very similar to how Paul viewed it. They were, uh, they were called one-way missionaries. They bought tickets to the mission field without a return trip back to the States. And instead of suitcases, they, they bought coffins. And they loaded the coffins with the little things that they had and sailed away. And they waved goodbye to their family and friends, knowing that they would never return. Their mentality, pack your coffin. Because that's really what matters. A.W. Milne was one of those missionaries. He set sail for the New Hebrides in the South Pacific, fully aware that there were headhunters where he was going that they had martyred every missionary before him. Milne did not fear for his own life because he had already died to himself. He died for Christ, to Christ. His coffin was packed. And for 35 years, he lived among this particular tribe. And when he died on April 1937, they buried him in the middle of their village and inscribed this on his tombstone. When he came, there was no light. When he left, there was no darkness. He was a telescope. Paul is saying that's what it's all about. It doesn't matter whether I live or die. It's that Christ is honored through it all. Number four, fill in the blank. Um, Let's not fill in the blank. (laughs) Living means living for blank. Verse 21, for me, living means living for Christ and dying is even better. Paul is saying my life is wrapped up in Jesus. Do you get that from him? Hmm? It's all about Jesus. That's his mission statement. Instead of complaining about being under house arrest, he rejoices. uh, And when he dies, his life will get even better. That's what he's fired up about. And Christ was at the conscious center of everything in Paul's life. What's it drove him? And how could Paul say that? Because for Paul, death did not mean he was going to be put in a cemetery. It ushered him into the sanctuary, into the very presence of Jesus Christ. That's what he had to look forward to. There was a family that moved to a new town, relocated. They started attending a, a new church. Their son went to Sunday school and after church on their way home, the parents asked him about how his Sunday school class was. And the boy said, it was good. Yeah, it was good. And uh, the parents said, well, tell us about your teacher. And the boy thought for a moment and then said, well, she must have been Jesus' grandmother. <laughs> because Jesus was the only one she kept talking about through the whole class. 
that, that was Paul. That was Paul. He was, he was related to Jesus because Jesus was the only person he talked about. Uh, are you related to Jesus? Uh, are you? Paul says, for living means Christ. For living means Christ. When we say fill in the blank, living means living for, our culture is filling in those blanks with everything but Christ. We can take a quick quiz here. What would you fill in the blank for you? What Living means living for what? What is it? What's, what's consuming you? And once again, I'll have Daryl Strawberry speak that before he put his faith in Christ, he, living means living for, he said, I was a heathen. I was a liar. I was a womanizer. I was a cheater. I was an alcoholic. I was a drug addict. Say, what are you going to put in your blank? Living means living for. Well, Daryl says, but I was a sinner. That was the past. I'm saved by grace. So Daryl will print in living is all for Christ. Living for Christ, and that's it. Paul says, if I live, I'll live for Christ. If I die, I'll live with Christ. Yeah. Yeah. And uh, I just want to encourage you this morning. Lord, help me. to honor Christ with my life and everything that I do, whether I live or I die. John Wesley had a covenant prayer that he gave to the early Methodists every new year uh, to pray, and it was a way of remembering and renewing their commitment to Christ. And this is what it says, I am no longer my own but yours. Put me to what you will, rank me with who you will, put me to doing, put me to suffering. Let me be employed by you or laid aside for you, exalted for you or brought low for you. Let me be full, let me be empty. Let me have all things, let me have nothing. I freely and heartily yield all things to your pleasure and disposal. Oh, and now, oh, glorious and blessed God. Can can you see John Wesley? I can see him lifting his hands right here. And now, oh, glorious and blessed God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, you are mine, and I am yours, so be it. And the covenant which I have made on earth, let it be ratified in heaven. Amen. It's a good prayer. It's a good good point to refocus on what's important in our lives. Lord, my life is yours. Number five, torn between two worlds, verse 22. But if I live, I can do more fruitful work for Christ. So I really don't know which is better. I'm torn between two desires. 
I long to go to be with Christ, which would be far better for me. You can see Paul's struggle here. Mm -hmm. I'm torn. I'm torn. Man, I want to be with the Lord. But I realize if I stay on earth, I can, I can make a difference. And you can see the unselfishness here with Paul. Man, the man who has struggled, beaten, suffered so much. He's willing to stay on his earth, earth longer to make a difference and be that telescope in his world. Let's go back to the Columbia shuttle on February 1st, 2003. Talking about how we deal with death. Evelyn Husband wrote the book High Calling. She had the, yeah, she was able to write this book out of pain because her husband Rick was the shuttle commander of that Columbia spacecraft that exploded before entering the Earth's atmosphere. Rick was a man, if you read his story, he was a solid follower of Jesus Christ, and he was the commander of that shuttle. And inside the book, Evelyn has photos of her family. There's one photo that shows Evelyn along with her children, Laura and Matthew, waiting for the shuttle to land. They're all smiles, and in the background you can see the countdown clock showing 11 minutes and 21 seconds until touchdown. What they do not know is that the shuttle had already exploded, literally seconds after the photo was taken. And they learned the news that would change their lives forever. But in her book, Evelyn shares her heart, and I just want to say, friends, that being a follower of Christ, we are not putting our head in the sand. We're not crossing our fingers. We're not living in a fantasy world. We're living in the real world where people hurt, where people struggle. But the cool thing is, even though Jesus promised in this world we have troubles, he promises to walk us through those troubles. And this is what Evelyn writes out of her pain. I have lost all sense of politeness with God. I have cried and wept and yelled at him. But I know he's big enough to handle it. He has drawn me closer than ever thought possible. He has held me close to his heart and let me cry for as long as I've needed. My sister-in-law, Kathy, told me on February 1st when Rick perished that God would walk me step by step through this sorrow and he has. Time and again, what the Lord said in the Bible has proved faithful and true. Evelyn knows God's word and his promises are true. She lived it out. And she is basically saying to you and to me, you can trust the Lord. Whether you live or whether you die. Our lives as followers of Christ they're in God's hands. Father, thank you this morning that we can trust you. Lord, even when life throws all kinds of pain and suffering our way,
We have the assurance that you stand with us, that you will walk us through the entire process, that you will never abandon us, Lord. And we thank you for the example of Paul who had the confidence of his eternity, knowing that when Jesus went to the cross and died and paid for the sins of the world, Paul put his faith in Jesus. He put his trust in Jesus knowing that he had been adopted into God's family. Therefore, he will go to heaven when he passes from this earth. That's confidence. You might be here today and you have not put your faith in Jesus. I just want to encourage you, like Daryl Strawberry, like so many others, so many in this room, myself included, that we realized that we were sinners that needed a Savior, that when we do that, when we put our faith in Christ, our eternity is sealed because God gives us his spirit as a deposit for the inheritance that we have that one day we will see Jesus face to face. Don't you want that confidence? Huh? Don't you want that assurance? So many people live their lives crossing their fingers. Well, I hope I'm good enough. Well, I'm, I hope there's more good than bad in my life that God will let me in. No, no, no. Don't, you don't have to live like that. You can know. You can know. I know. I know. And look at how it liberated Paul. Look how it liberated Evelyn's husband, that she would see her husband again one day. Very simply, you say, Jesus, I'm a sinner. Forgive me. You died on the cross for my sins, not some of them, but all of them. And I'm asking you, Lord, to forgive me. I believe you died on the cross in my place and you paid my sin debt in full. Lord, I, I believe that. And I'm inviting you to come into my life today, right here, right now, to become my spiritual leader. Thank you. Thank you for doing that, Lord. And I will live for you through the power of your spirit for the rest of my life. Yeah. Thank you for loving me. Thank you for dying for me. You proved that love by dying for me. Thank you for forgiving me, Lord. In Jesus' name, amen.